Hello, every freak in the world. I'm Stacy. I'm Coulter. And this is, of course, Any Crime at All. Um, so, first and foremost tonight, we just want to send all of our love and healing and everything to the people of Lewiston, Maine. I haven't heard at this point whether he was caught or not, but I hope he gets caught soon. As of an hour and a half ago, he wasn't. He wasn't, eh? Yeah. Okay, well, I hope he gets caught soon. I'm kind of thinking that he probably went somewhere and did himself in. Because that's what these fucking cowards tend to do. Or he's planning on something else. Or he's planning something else, which I hope he isn't. Let's hope he did himself in. Okay, so with that done... That was me coughing. Is there anything new and exciting in your world, Coulter? Other than Sting announcing his retirement from wrestling? No. Not really, eh? No. I've just been... Watching wrestling stuff. It's working and all that. That's stuff. all I do. Um, I don't know if we told you guys we got a new kitten. Did we? Yeah, we already that? talked about yeah? that. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's growing super fast, and I think he's going to be one of the bigger cats we have. Yeah. Um, and he's uh, he's a shady little fucker too. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So this week we're going to be talking about Joel Rifkin. Now, before we get to Joel Rifkin, do you want to speak about... I do want to talk... Okay, or do you want so... to do that after? We should be planning okay. this before. Yeah, I'm just going to tell you that <laughs> I got my... Some of the research online. And some of the research... Through a book called Joel Rifkin. The Horrifying and True Story of Joel the Ripper. Um, by Jack Rosewood and Rebecca Lowe. Now, I've seen Jack Rosewood books before. I'd never bought one before. And I bought this one because it was a good price. And now I know why it was a good price. Because uh, the book is... How many pages did I say, Colt? Let me see here. The book is... Da, 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 da. Gotta get to it here. 163 pages and about... Under 50 pages deal with Joel Rifkin. Yeah, total, total uh, false advertising. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to start this off, Coulter, by, and every all the freaks out there, I'm going to start this off with how I was so hard-pressed to find any information on the victims in this case. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, for that matter, especially when it has to do with sex workers, you can barely find anything about them, yeah, well, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, that's the case with many of them, unfortunately. Yeah. It pisses me off that all I could find was that these women were drug-addicted prostitutes, so said the author. I mean, they had lives, parents, family. What someone does for work should in no way define them. That's how I think. And the fact that they had an addiction should not be the only thing that people know about them. People don't choose to be addicted to things. It happens. You know, no one chooses to be a fucking heroin addict. I mean, no one wants, I can't see anyone actually wanting to live just for the drunk. You know what I mean? No, and it happens. It just happens. Yeah. Usually it has something to do with them trying to mask something to begin with. They exactly. realize it works temporarily, so they keep doing it. Yeah. Or yeah. They, they, and then they just can't stop doing it. Like heroin... From what I've heard, it gets right into your fucking DNA almost, you know? Like, not almost, but you know what I mean. Okay, so Joel Rifkin is a serial killer. He not, may not be as well known as Bundy or Gacy, 
but he has the horrifying distinction of being the most prolific killer in New York history. This is his story. Rifkin was born on January 20th, 1975 in New York in, of course, the United States to a 20-year-old mother and a 24-year-old college student or a soldier, depending on the source you look at, right? Uh, that was the father. He was only born in 75? 79. Did 70... I say 75? I think so, yeah. He was born in 79? No, 59. Sorry. Could... I got that completely wrong. Because I was thinking, what, was he 14 years old doing this shit Yeah, or no, I, I put it wrong. Sorry. Uh, 59 to... 93, what would that be? 34. Okay, yeah. He must have been born in 69 then. Sorry about that, guys. Sometimes I type so fast and I don't So read he's it back. born in 1969 yeah. to a mother who was 20. And a father who was 24. Okay. Now, it is not known if his birth parents didn't think they could care for him or if they just didn't want him. Either way, he was put up for adoption right away. Not long after his birth... Three weeks, in fact, he was adopted by Benjamin and Jean Rifkin. Then three years later, the Rifkins adopted a baby girl as well. In, no, 59. In 1965, the little family settled in East Meadow on Long Island in New York. The family seemed to live a happy life. There was no domestic abuse that anyone could ever find, no child abuse, and the family was uh, upper middle class. Okay, so a pretty decent life yeah, for Yeah, he had a pretty good... Uh, as far as we know, on the outside. Exactly. There did not seem to be any family matters that might be able to explain Joel's future behavior. Okay? No family matters that would explain it. This is the whole nature versus nurture argument. Yeah. Rifkin was an awkward, shy kid, and he walked with what was described as a sloping posture. You know, shoulders in. Yeah. Bent a little bit. Low self-esteem. Yeah. This earned him the nickname Joel the Turtle. When he was in, you know, primary grade. Turtle, turtle. Yeah. Pretty much from the time he started school, he was a prime target for bullying and abuse. Sorry, I got a cat on top of me here. <laughs> um, he had an IQ of 128. Okay, that's really good. Yeah, that's quite good. But he still struggled in school. Later, he was thought to have had dyslexia. But as far as I could tell anywhere, he's never been formally diagnosed with it. As he got a little older and moved from grade to grade, the bullying increased. He was the victim of pranks, name-calling, and actual violence. It got so bad that at the end of the day, Rifkin would wait inside the school until all the students had left because he was so terrified. So was there a girl he liked that used to laugh at him getting bullied or something? Not that I could find there. Because that, 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 that would make sense. Mm -hmm. High school was no better for him. The bullying, coupled with the dyslexia, made for poor grades, and his dad would yell at him because of them. His sister was probably getting good grades, and I mean, they're upper middle class. He, it did say that his dad was a little embarrassed that he was getting such poor grades. Yeah. His mother didn't know about the bullying, so she just thought her son was a loner. So obviously he never told anyone about the... Or if he did tell, no one did anything about it. Yeah. I would have lost my fucking mind. Well, it's a different time. Yeah. Um, because it, the, the father would be like, well, just hit him back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, a gangly, awkward teen with glasses, ill-fitting clothes, and a sloping, slow gait. 
Unfortunately, at the time, he was a prime target for bullies. Yeah, for sure. He did try to fit in, fit in by joining the track team, but he was given a new nickname, Lardass, and had his head shoved into toilets. Wow. Yeah, he didn't have it very good in school. Despite all of this, Joel still tried to fit in. He invited some of the bullies over, over to his house to watch TV and drink beer, thinking that they'd befriend him. No such luck. They just used him and dumped him. In his senior year, Joel joined the yearbook staff with the hope of making friends. Nope. Someone stole his camera. Pretty much right away. Wow. Despite this setback, he continued to work hard to make the yearbook, yearbook great and get it out on time. He was very disappointed to learn that he hadn't even been invited to the yearbook rap party. Oh, man. Okay, yeah, this kid is... Yeah. Destined for fuckery. Oh, yeah. He then, <clears throat> pardon me, graduated in 1977 and figured college would be a lot better. Now, during high school, he had had two dates. Both dates were foiled by bullies. Once, locking him in the gym so he missed the date. Oh. And the other one, him and the girl went to a pizza place. Bullies came in and chased both of them. Out and down the street until they found solace in the public library. I feel sorry for Joel Rifkin. Yeah. See, we can feel sorry for the kid and what happened to them, you know, for serial killers and stuff. But you can't feel sorry for the choices they make later. Um, Rifkin enrolled at Nassau Community College on Long Island, but he cut so many classes that by the end of the first year, he only had completed one class. Oh, in 1978, he began classes at State University of New York at Brockport, near Rochester. Things were looking up when Joel joined the photography club and he entered into a relationship with a girl. The girl didn't last long, though, because she said he was sweet, but he seemed depressed all the time. Because he was. Yeah. And can you blame the kid at this point? Yeah. Yeah, he did not have it easy, the poor kid. Now that he was out of school, Rifkin had a... Oh, oh, sorry. I just completely skipped a little bit there. Sorry. Um, In 1980, Rifkin dropped out and moved back in with his parents and re-enrolled at Nassau College. However, he continued to cut classes, and his grades were very poor. So by 1984, he gave up on higher education altogether. Now that he was out of school, Rifkin had a few jobs. However, just like in college, he either didn't show up or he did extremely shoddy work. This resulted in him either getting fired or he just simply stopped showing up to work. Okay. Yeah. He tended to daydream a lot, mostly about becoming a famous poet or an author. But every time he tried to write something, it was always comprised of very dark content because he was perpetually depressed, which... Dark content sells. Yeah. Look at Edgar Allan Poe. That shit was dark. I don't think it started selling very well until after he died, but in the fall of... I feel like he could have been saved. I think so, too. In the fall of 1986, Rifkin's world would change forever. His father had already been diagnosed with emphysema, but now he also had prostate cancer. Mm, Okay. 
In February of 1987, after suffering months of pain and illness, Benjamin Rifkin took a bunch of barbiturates in order to put, put an end to his suffering. He was in a coma for... <laughs> he was in a coma for four days before he eventually passed away. When Joel eulogized his dad at the funeral, he brought everyone to tears. He was yeah. a, a writer of sorts, yeah. right? So, with the death of his father, Joel's depression grew exponentially, as one would think it would, right? The death of a parent, and by all accounts, they were great parents. So... Trudging on, Rifkin attended the New York State College of Technology to take a two-year course in horticulture, and he excelled during the first two semesters. Oh, really? Yeah. This earned him an internship at Planting Fields Arboretum in Oyster Bay, New York. That that was a big deal to get an in. It's a big deal to get an internship, pretty much anywhere, right? Yeah. There was a pretty blonde girl that was also an intern, and Rifkin really liked her. He said that he, quote-unquote, shadowed her and would fantasize about them being together. However, he got extremely frustrated when she did not reciprocate the interest. Apparently, this was Joel's breaking point. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to intercede here by saying that both Joel and the author seem to be blaming this woman for the horrifying things that Rifkin would go on to do. And hear that? And the author. Yes. This is horseshit. This garbage heap of a human would have gone on to kill regardless. Stop blaming women and victims for the evil things that people do. Well, I don't think he would have went on to kill regardless. I think... There would have been another breaking point. Yeah, something else but, would have made him. But snap. like I said, if I feel if there was the mental health help that we have today, yeah, I feel maybe he wouldn't have gone down that road. Don't go down that road. Yeah, <laughs> that's a dark road. Yeah. Um, now let's go back for a minute here. Joel became obsessed with sex workers back in 1972 when he watched a movie called Frenzy. <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> this movie is an Alfred Hitchcock film about a serial killer that rapes and strangles his female victims, dubbed the Necktie Murderer. So that he became obsessed with it through the Alfred Hitchcock film. Mm -hmm. Wow, I didn't yeah. know that about him. Mm. I didn't know that either until I read this. But right when you said the frenzy, I was like, oh my god, of course, that makes <laughs> perfect sense. I like Hitchcock movies too. I don't think I've ever seen this one. I'm very iffy on the Hitchcock, yeah. honestly. Yeah, him and his no belly button. Um, so that's a loose retelling of the plot based on what Rifkin took away from the movie. Yeah, there's more to it. Of course, yeah. So most of those times that he was ditching school and work was because he was with a sex worker. He hired them so much that at one point he went into debt. That's a lot of sex workers. Yeah. Around the same time, he began to get very interested in serial killers. He read books about them and even went so far as to clip newspaper articles about them. Um, then he began to fantasize about killing sex workers by means of strangulation and stabbing. It then became a matter of when, not if, he would carry out these violent fantasies. Joel Rifkin was a time bomb about to explode. Yeah. When they start having the fantasies, man. Okay, so now we're going to get on to the murders. 
In early March of 1989, Rifkin had decided that he would bring his fantasies to life. He was still living with his mother when she left on a trip. Rifkin picked up a sex worker from Manhattan named Susie. Apparently, she was a drug addict, and the pair stopped a few times to pick up drugs before going to the Rifkin house. They had what he later called listless intercourse. I mean, this is what these ladies do for a living, so, I mean, she's not going to be all, like, you know, oh, you king, you know. Yeah, you have to pay a lot more kind for of, that. Yeah. Then when Susie asked if they could get more drugs, Rifkin began to beat her over the head with a howitzer shell that his parents had as a souvenir. Fuck. The only reason he stopped hitting her was because he got too tired. So that was some serious fucking rage. Kept hitting her till he just got too tired to do it anymore. Yeah. Like, holy fuck. However, Susie was not dead at this point. And when Joel tried to move her, she bit him on the finger. Oh, Susie is in fight. Yeah. This was when he strangled the poor girl. Then he put the body in a garbage bag, cleaned up a little, then went to sleep. Because, you know, murdering people is hard work, apparently. Well, he got tired, apparently. Yeah. When he woke up, Rifkin brought Susie's body to the basement where he pulled all her teeth, cut mm. off her fingertips. You know why? Obviously. Yeah. DNA. Yeah. And so she couldn't be identified, identified. by fingerprints or yeah. uh, dental impressions. Then he dismembered her in his mother's basement. Rifkin then pull, put all the body parts in garbage cans and put the head in an empty paint can. He drove to New Jersey where he discarded the paint can and a few of the bags in a wooded area near the Hopewell Valley Golf Club. Then he threw the rest of the bags in the East River. That fucking East River. Yeah. The bodies that must be in the East River, man. I can't even imagine. It was just a few days later that a man playing golf found the paint can and Susie's severed head was discovered. Although police... Imagine finding that? No. I thought of that when I was, like, researching it. Like, open it. Oh, I wonder if there's any paint... Because it must have felt full. Yeah. So... Uh, but it, you, if you lifted it, maybe, depending on the size of the can, did you hear something banging around in there? Yeah. Yeah. But... I, I've been wanting to paint my garage. I mean... And then you see a head. Oof. Oh. Yeah. Um... Although police did have her head, Susie remained unidentified. But they did report on TV that she was HIV positive. Rifkin then got scared that he was infected as well. Over a year later in 1990, Rifkin's mother went on another trip, so he decided to kill again. He chose a sex worker that reminded him of Madonna. Her okay. name was Julie Blackbird. They went back to the Rifkin house and ended up spending the night together. And the next morning, Joel beat Julie with a table leg, then strangled her. In later interviews, he said that he considered necrophilia, but decided against it because it was gross. Well, at least he has a limit. Yeah. Not like Ted Bundy. Yeah. Or uh, Dahmer. The Green River Killer. Yep. Yep, Gary Ridgway. While Julie Blackbird's lifeless body was in his house, Rifkin went to a hardware store and bought cement. He then dismembered the body and put the head and the appendages in buckets 
and the torso in a milk crate and filled them all with cement. He then threw the head and torso into the East River and the rest of the buckets in a barge canal in Brooklyn. Julie Blackbird's remains have never been found. The only reason I know about her is that he confessed to her murder. Yeah. Uh, and her diary was among the evidence found at his house later on. On July 13th, 1991, Joel was on the hunt again when he spotted Barbara Jacobs, a 31-year-old sex worker. He picked her up and they went back to his house where they engaged in sex. Barbara fell asleep and Joel took that opportunity to hit her in the head with a table leg, then strangle her. What about him in table legs? I don't know. Seeing as the little maggot didn't want to dismember the body, he folded Barbara up into a cardboard box, then dumped her in the Hudson River. Her remains were found just a few hours later by some firemen doing training exercises in the area. He's getting a little lazier, right? Mm. The coroner ruled her death as a drug overdose. She's in a fucking box. It wasn't until Rifkin confessed to murdering her that the truth came out. On See, the, assumption. Yep. On September 1st, 1991, Mary Ellen DeLuca was working when she agreed to a date with Rifkin. Now... Does he have his own place at this point? No. No? No. Now, if most people don't know, sex workers will call them dates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, had, she agreed to a date with Rifkin. They drove around all night doing crack until the sun came up. Then they got a cheap motel where they had sex. According to Rifkin, Mary complained the whole time because she wanted more drugs and he was getting angry. Apparently, he asked her if she wanted to die and she said yes. This is according to him. Rifkin said Mary did not try to fight back as he strangled her and commented that this murder was, quote, a weird one, unquote. Now that's what he said. Yeah. So who knows? However, disposing of the body would be tricky as he was at a motel in the daylight. Oh my god. Rifkin went out and bought a steamer trunk <clears throat> and put Mary Ellen DeLuca's remains in it. He took the trunk to Orange County and left it near a rest stop. Just near a rest stop. There's just a trunk sitting there. Her remains would not be found until October 1st, 1991. No one looked in that trunk? Apparently not. Wow. I'd look in the trunk. <laughs> Maybe it was a tickle trunk. Um, Mary, like Barbara Jacobs, would remain a Jane Doe until Rifkin confessed in 1993. Now, after the murder of Mary Ellen DeLuca, Rifkin continued to hire sex workers, but he just let them go unharmed until later in September. That night, he'd already had been, been with a sex worker. But Are we still in September 91? Yep. Oh, so he got sex workers in between? Yep. Well, so he was getting them. He was addicted to them. He was them. getting them every day. Yes. Okay. Sometimes two times a day. Yeah. That's why he went into debt at that one point. That what, how do you have money? What Does he have a job? I guess he was working here and there until he got fired or quit or probably mom, money from his mother. That's interesting. <clears throat> he probably got some money when his father died. Like... Um... So yeah, that night he'd already been with a sex worker, but decided to pick up 31-year-old Yoon Lee. He'd had previous dates with the Korean woman, so she had no problem getting into his truck. However, when they began having intercourse, 
Joel was not up to the challenge, as he'd already been with a sex worker. Apparently, this pissed him off, so of course he took it out on her, on Yun Lee. He punched her, then strangled her to death. Whilst choking her, Rifkin said Lee mouthed to him that he was making a big mistake. Okay. I don't know what that means, like what she will never know. Who she she works for. Yeah, maybe. 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 He did say that he had a short-lived feeling of remorse for Yun Lee because he'd known her. But then he got another steamer trunk, placed the body inside, and threw it in the East River. Lee's remains were found on September 23rd, my birthday, and she was identified by her ex-husband. The days leading up to Christmas, Rifkin went out hunting again. He picked up a sex worker on West 46th Street in Manhattan. She would come to be known as Number 6, because Joel could not remember her name. And as far as I could tell, she hasn't been identified. Okay. She began to perform oral sex on the asshat when he strangled her. Rifkin said her murder was quick. Then he placed her under a tarp, you know, all this, at his work while he drove to a recycling plant in Westbury and bought a 55-gallon drum. He put the body in the drum, drove to a junkyard, then rolled it into the East River. He hit it at work? Yeah. While he was leaving the scene, he was stopped by the cops and asked if he was dumping garbage illegally. But he appeased them by saying that he was collecting junk, and they let him go. Wow. <laughs> Fuck. On December 26, 1991, Rifkin picked up 28-year-old Lorraine Orvieto, I hope I'm saying that right, in Bay Shore, Long Island, and they drove to a school. He parked near a fence and choked her to death as she performed oral sex on him. After Lorraine was dead, he went through her purse and found AZT medicine, which meant AIDS. that she was HIV positive. He decided to keep the meds, as well as some jewelry and her ID. These are all trophies, right? As you know, and as our freaks probably know at this point, yeah. serial killers like to keep trophies. These would be his trophies. He then drove to his work, placed her body in a 55-gallon drum, he then dumped it in Coney Island Creek in Brooklyn. On July 11, 1992, a fisherman found Lorraine Orvieto's remains. Unfortunately, her family only reported her missing two months later. Now, I will say that the author was sort of condescending about the family only reporting her missing two months later, but we don't know what that family dynamic was like. No. Okay? Maybe she went for months without contacting her family. Yeah. You don't know, right? So I just want to put that out there. Maybe there was a birthday or something and she missed the birthday. Exactly, right? Something like that. You, We don't know. January 2nd, 1992, 39-year-old Marianne Holloman had the misfortune of accepting a date with Joel Rifkin. He took her to the same place where he'd murdered Yoon Lee. And while she was giving him oral sex, Rifkin strangled her to death. He purportedly said that there was nothing, quote-unquote, remarkable about this murder. Nothing remarkable. Wow. Dude, it's a murder. That's he's, pretty fucking remarkable. He strangled a woman to death. <laughs> he then put her body in a 55-gallon drum and dumped Mary, Al- Mary Ann Holloman's remains in Coney Island Creek. It wasn't until July 9th, 1992. Oh, that's when Jake was born. Yeah, the exact day. My nephew, born. his cousin. 
that her body was recovered after an anonymous call was placed to the police. Okay. So, I mean, that's sort of like, did he do it? Did somebody just make the call if they saw the, the barrel, you know, like... Did he make the call to... Because killers will do that. Yeah, they will. will. Yeah, you they'll know? play with the police. Yeah. So... Or they want to get caught. He never admitted to... Not anything I could find, but this book was shit. So, I mean, he could have. Um, she was identified by dental records, and her grieving family took her remains for burial. Incidentally, Lorraine Orvieto's remains were found, and police conceded that they might have a serial killer on the loose. Yeah, maybe. The next victim is only known as Number 9, even though her remains were found before Orvieto and Holloman. She was a sex worker that he picked up in Manhattan, and she had tattoos. That's all he remembered about her. Rifkin did say that she fought back extremely hard when he was strangling her. He placed her body in his last 55-gallon drum and dumped her remains in Newtown Creek in Brooklyn. The drum was discovered on May 13, 1992, and upon closer inspection, a foot was seen sticking out of a rusty part in the drum. Upon seeing a large amount of cocaine in her system, the coroner and police surmised that she'd been a drug mule when a condom filled with cocaine had busted inside her, causing an overdose. Wow. Yep. I mean, you don't That's... see any bruising on her throat? Which, uh... You think you would? I don't know. <clears throat> I would just like to see their faces when... When they were told, yeah, that was a murder, guys. Like, Idiots. One day in April 1992, Rifkin decided to ditch work and go find his next victim. Iris Sanchez, 25, was the unfortunate soul he took that day. They drove to a nearby housing project and began to have sex. In the middle of the act, Rifkin strangled her to death. He then drove to Rockaway Boulevard in Queens, where he yeah. found an illegal dump site. He placed Sanchez underneath a rotting mattress and took all of her jewelry. Now, this dump site was very visible. Yeah. It was really visible from JFK Airport, even. <laughs> After having said that, Iris Sanchez, Iris Sanchez would not be found until Rifkin confessed to her murder. Really? Yeah. He had to draw the detectives a map to the site. Holy shit. Crazy. On Memorial Day in 1992, May 25th to be exact, Rifkin found mother of three, Anna Lopez, on Atlantic Avenue in Queens, and she agreed to a date. Now, I'm just going to stop here for a second, and you and I discussed this briefly, but this is a mother of three, a single mother of three, okay? And she did have a drug habit. But the author goes on to say that she was only doing sex work to support her habit. Give me a break, okay? Some people have to do things they don't want to to survive in this world. Don't just put it on the fucking habit. She was supporting three children on her own. I hate that. Any thoughts, Colt? Well, I completely fucking agree with you. Yeah. Like, it's clear, like like I said to you b before we ever did the podcast, when you mm -hmm. told me a bit about the author, mm -hmm. that he's either just really stupid or really misogynistic. Yeah. 
Or and you I, said maybe he's really, really fucking religious. Or religious, like a religious freak. Yeah. yeah, and prostitution thing. Okay, yes. It's not clear when exactly he strangled her, whether it was during intercourse or not, but he did, in fact, murder her. Then he did something odd. Rifkin ended up driving all night long looking for the perfect disposal site. He's driving around with a dead person in his vehicle. Fuck. Um, in the end, he left her on the side of the I-40, I'm sorry, I-84 freeway in Brewster, Putnam County. Lopez was found the very next day by a man who had stopped to relieve himself. One of Anna's earrings would later be discovered in Rifkin's bedroom. So that, that tells me that it's not just the murdering that gets him off, it's the whole act. Yep. He was lazy with the one, mm-hmm. uh, but if he drove all around all night to find the perfect dump site, and it's yeah. not even that great of a dump site if the exactly. guy found her the next day, yeah. unless he wants... Maybe he just got tired of looking, really. Yeah, like, I don't know. Because based on the rest of his life, like, he did poorly in school, couldn't keep a job... He doesn't seem... He seems like kind of a slacker. You yeah. Know? So, I don't... I don't know. We'll never know. Now, Violet O'Neill... I love that name, Violet. Was only 21 when Rifkin took her life. 21. Yeah. She had so much more life if she hadn't met up with this fucking... I don't even have a name for him right now. He returned to his original... Modest operandi. Oh, thank you very much. And took her back to the house he shared with his mom. They had sex. Then he strangled poor Violet before dismembering her body. He placed her limbs in a suitcase and her torso was wrapped in black plastic before he threw all of her in the Hudson River. No, I assume his mom was gone. Doesn't say. Maybe not. Oh, that's interesting. Dahmer killed people when he was living with his grandma and she was on the yeah. third floor asleep. While he was in the basement. Mary Catherine Williams was once crowned homecoming queen. So she must have been, you know, upbeat and popular and pretty and stuff like that. But after moving to New York to become an actor, she fell on hard times and had to turn to sex work in order to survive. Again, the author blamed the sex work on drugs. Uh, I wonder how many actresses and stuff have done sex work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know, eh? Um, Mary and Rifkin knew each other from previous dates, so when, on October 2nd, 1992, he approached her, Mary probably didn't hesitate to get into Rifkin's truck. After sex, Mary fell asleep, and Rifkin figured this would be the ideal time to murder her. However, Mary woke up and put up a fuck of a fight for her life. Good honor. Unfortunately, shitbag Joel overpowered her and took her life. He dumped her body somewhere in Yorktown, Westchester. He did keep her purse and all of her costume jewelry. Her body was found just two months later, but she would remain a Jane Doe until Rifkin's confession. Like most of them. But, see, this is what I don't understand, okay? Um, This is the 90s, and... It's been going on for a long time that when you're busted, you get fingerprinted. Yeah. These were sex workers. They tend to get busted a lot for what they're doing. Yeah, but they tend to get off a lot without ever having to go to the station. 
True. Because the cops are like, you know, do do me a solid. And... Yeah. But I don't know. Not all cops are like that. So, I don't know. I would just think that there would be fingerprints. But well, I don't well, know. Maybe not. Well, some of them were yeah. identified. Yeah, I know. But, like... <sighs> it, it depends on where they're working, too. Some of them have... Like, the cops know what's going on. That's true. Yeah. And they keep an eye on it, but they don't catch them, per se. Yeah. There's a lot of... Yeah. There's a lot of mitigating factors, I guess. Yeah. And plus, he was cutting off the fingertips, wasn't he? Just that one he did. Just the one? Just the first one. Okay. Yeah. The last murder he committed in 1992 was that of 23-year-old Jenny Soto. She was working as a sex worker in Lower Manhattan when, on November 16th, she agreed to a date with Joel Rifkin. As he tried to strangle her, Jenny fought back so hard that all of her nails were broken. Ugh. Later, Rifkin would admit that, quote, she was the toughest to kill, unquote. This time, his trophies would be Jenny's ID, a syringe, her earrings, and her underwear. He then rolled her into the Harlem River. You may recall that Yoon Lee's remains were also found in the Harlem River almost exactly to the day a year earlier. Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, because Jenny Soto had fought so hard, Rifkin had a lot of scratches on him. This made him nervous, so he waited, you ready for this, a whole 15 weeks before he struck again. 15 weeks? Yeah, and, like, I meant that to be sarcastic, but... For him, that's a lot. That's almost that's four lot. months. Yeah, and he was going pretty fucking hard there. On February 27th, 1993... Oh, my birth date. The day you were born... I was having a baby, he was killing someone. Just different people, you know? Um, Leah Evans was 28 and a mother of two when she had the misfortune of accepting a date with a serial killer. And again... The author. The author accused her of doing sex work in order to fund her habit. Not the fact that she had two children and was a single mother. He picked Leah up in Brooklyn and they drove to an empty parking lot where they were about to engage in sex, but then Leah asked if they could go somewhere more private. Rifkin absolutely refused. Then, when Leah began to cry, the dirtbag strangled her to death. He then drove to some woods on Long Island and buried her in a shallow grave. This is the first and only one he would bury. Mm. On May 9th, some hikers noticed a hand sticking out of the dirt and notified yeah, so the police. Do you think he buried her because he didn't have sex with her? I don't know. You never know. You never know. Maybe he just he buried her just for a different way to dispose of the body. Like, maybe they'll find... She'll be harder to find if I bury her. It's interesting that he but, buried her. But it was a shallow grave. So yeah, yeah. It must have been really shallow if her hand was sticking out. Like, Yeah. Um... The police were notified. Leah Evans would remain unidentified until Rifkin confessed to murdering her. Lauren Marquez was a sex worker originally from Tennessee. She was only 28 years old when she died at the hands of a monster. They drove to a place near the Manhattan Bridge and Rifkin began to choke her. Then, a man walking his dog 
got Joel's attention, and Lauren took this moment to try to escape. Apparently, she almost made it, too, according to Rifkin. <clears throat> but he overpowered her and ended up breaking her neck. He disposed of Lauren's remains somewhere in Suffolk County, and she would not be found until Rifkin confessed. This asshole's 17th and final victim was a girl named Tiffany Bresciani. She was originally from Louisiana and had come to New York in search of stardom. However, she too fell on hard times and had to support herself by doing sex work. On June 24, 1993, Joel was driving his mother's car when he propositioned her for a date and she agreed. This would be the fourth sex worker he had hired in just two days. Okay. This was how bad his sex-slash-murder addiction had gotten. They drove to the New York Post and parked in an empty lot to the New York Post. The New York fucking Post? And dreamt, uh, dreamt, what? And parked in an empty lot where he strangled Tiffany to death, then put her in the back seat while he went to a store to buy a tarp and some rope. This poor dead lady is laying in the backseat of his mother's car while he goes into Walmart or some shit. Fuck. That's either stupidity or balls. Yeah, I'm going to sort of side with stupidity more than balls, but by the time he got home, Tiffany's remains were wrapped and tied and in the trunk. What Rifkin hadn't counted on, though, was his mom immediately taking the car so she could go shopping. Yeah, Coulter's looking at me like, what I don't the remember, fuck? I don't remember this. <clears throat> this poor lady was driving around Long Island doing her little errands and shit with the remains of a woman her son had murdered in her trunk. Wow. When his mom got home, still oblivious to the body in her trunk, Rifkin put Tiffany's body in the garage. Here's where things got a little bit weirder. Rifkin left this decomposing body in the garage for the next three days. Why? While he worked on his truck. I'm wondering how no one smelled that decomposing corpse in the summer in New York. Now, I don't know what summer is like on Long Island, but New York sort of has the same kind of temperature as southern Ontario. Yeah. And it's fucking hot and humid in the summer. In June. Yeah. So, that must have been decomposing pretty quick. If it's around the same temperature. How did he do that? Yeah. Yeah. After the three days, the asshole loaded the body into the, truck of his, into the back of his truck to dispose of it. He was headed about 15 miles away to Melville's Republic Airport. However, Rifkin had neglected to put his license plates on his truck. Oh my god. Yeah. And a trooper noticed this, so of course he pulled Rifkin over. No fucking plates, right? However, Joel had other plans. He immediately sped up, and a strange chase ensued. Rifkin only got to 50 miles per hour. Now, that's pretty fast on, like, city streets, yeah. I would imagine, right? I don't know what 50 miles per hour converted to kilometers is. Do you know how to do that? Uh, I don't know how to not do necessarily, that. no. Maybe 90, 80 to 90. Mm. 
and only for about 20 minutes before he crashed into a utility pole. The trooper approached the car and ordered the driver out of the vehicle. Rifkin was cuffed, and this was when the cop noticed the putrid fucking smell coming from the back of the truck. Now, I want you to remember this. He noticed the putrid smell coming from the back of the truck. Yeah. Okay? This is, uh, what do they call it? Uh, cause of, you know, where it's legal to search the truck because you think there's something yeah. going on. Uh, what do you call that? Uh, cause. Uh, yeah, but it's called a... Uh... Oh, I can't think of it right now. <sighs> but he had a legal cause to search. Yes, he okay? did. Um, when he looked in the back, he noticed a blue tarp. When he gently peeled the tarp back, the trooper was horrified to find human remains. This is when Joel Rifkin knew he'd fucked up. I just thought of that meme when I wrote that down. You forget to put the license plates on? Wow. What a fucking devil. See, that's why I was siding more towards stupidity. Yeah. Rifkin first confessed, very matter-of-factly, to the trooper about Bresciani's murder. Then he was taken to Troop L Barracks, where he proceeded to confess to all 17 murders. The confession, however, was not even recorded. Oh my god. So dumb. During this time, police say that he waived his right to have an attorney, but Rifkin said that he asked for a lawyer a few times during the eight-hour confession. So who knows? No it wasn't one, fucking no recorded, one, yeah. so who knows? With no emotion, or very little emotion, the cops said, Rifkin remembered specific details about the murders, the dismembering, the disposal sites, and so on. However, he remembered very little in comparison about the actual victims. He did say that he preferred white, Asian, and Hispanic sex workers, and I put, this is a prime example of how serial killers dehumanize their victims. They're an object. Humans become objects for the killer to use in order to satisfy his or her desire or compulsion, whatever you want to call it's it. It's almost like someone feeling frustrated during the day and they go to the gym and hit the heavy bag. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. That's what they look at their victims like exactly. almost. Yeah. Yeah. During this confession, Rifkin admitted that he started seeing sex workers... The very same day that he got his fucking driver's license at the age of 16. Oh, wow. So 1975. Yeah. Now, before this, the cops weren't sure if the whole story was true. After that little tidbit came out, though, he be they began to get a little bit horrified at the sheer number of potential victims there could actually be. If he was getting sex workers since he was 16. Yeah. Um, poor Gene Rifkin... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Separate teams of investigators were immediately put to work. One team to find bodies, one team to search Rifkin's car, and one team to search the house he shared with his mom in East Meadow. Now, poor Jean Rifkin saw a bunch of police just surrounding her house, and she was like, like what the fuck, guys? You know? I remember this is a lady who was upper middle class. Yeah. And yeah. Probably a cop had never been to the home. Yeah, probably not. Unless it was for dinner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, <clears throat> so they informed her that Joel had been detained at a traffic stop and was now in jail due to a different crime. 
Now, they got warrants for the searches and everything. Yeah. Like, we'll point that out right away. Gene immediately called a criminal lawyer named Robert Sale. There was quite literally a treasure trove of evidence found in Rifkin's bedroom. Bedroom. This included, but was not limited to, makeup, jewelry, photos of the victims. Not photos he took, just but photos that they the, had From on. their purses right. and whatnot. Exactly. Driver's licenses, purses, and underwear. That's not all of it. That's just some of yeah. it. Yeah. All trophies taken from these poor women after he brutally murdered them. The police also found numerous books on serial killers and hardcore sadistic porn movies. Now, I just want to point out here that just having serial killer books doesn't make you dangerous. Because, I mean, if the cops came in here... Yeah. Just in my bedroom, in my bookshelf, it's like fucking 50 fucking serial killer books. And then you look on my phone and there's probably 50 more. But you, so, but, then, but then you pair it with the evidence found and it's like, okay, exactly. this guy's... Yeah. And also watching sadistic porn doesn't the, make you this guy wasn't either. This guy wasn't reading those books because he was interested. He was almost studying them, yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And as, as I stated before, earlier in the podcast, he was actually even clipping out newspaper articles about them. Yeah. I've never done that. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> it was when the cops searched the garage that they got truly horrified. Apparently his mom never went into the garage, by the way. They found three ounces of blood in a wheelbarrow, which I assume that's where he had kept Tiffany Bresciani's body for the three days. Yeah, it must be. A chainsaw that on closer inspection revealed blood and tissue in the chain. He used a fucking chainsaw. To dismember. You know how messy that would be? And a few other tools just covered in dried human blood. This guy did not think about cleaning anything, apparently. Fuck. Um, it should be known that as soon as Gene Rifkin hired Robert Sale, he immediately called the police interrogating Rifkin and demanded that they stop talking to him at that moment. The cops did not listen to this and continued to question Rifkin because they figured he's confessing we shouldn't stop him. I'm just thinking that they're fucking lucky the case wasn't thrown out because yeah, yeah, that would have been horrible to let that fuck out. Well, he would he would be in prison for that one murder anyway. Yeah, but because he was caught with a body. Exactly. Yeah. On June 29th... and probably while he was in prison, they would be able to tie everything else to him because of the evidence found. Exactly. Yeah. So he'd yeah. be fucked anyway. On June 29th, nineteen ninety-three, Rifkin made his first court appearance. The presiding judge was John Kingston, and he listened as Rifkin entered a not-guilty plea for the Tiffany Bresciani case. Not guilty. Yeah, so stupid. Yeah. Sale didn't even try for Bond. They knew, he knew they weren't going to fucking let him out. But he did get a two-week postponement, postponement for the official arraignment. During these two weeks, Rifkin fired Sale and hired attorneys John Lawrence and Michael Soshnick to defend him. Soshnik had a good rep in criminal law, but Lawrence had absolutely no experience in criminal law at that time. The suppression hearing began in November of 1993, and Soshnik's first order of business was to try to get Joel's confession thrown out, stating that the trooper had no legal reason to search Rifkin's truck. Probable cause. Probable cause. There we go. This was denied. 
A few months into the four-month-long hearing, the prosecution offered Rifkin 46 years to life if he agreed to plead guilty for all 17 murders. Rifkin declined, thinking that he might be able to beat the whole rap if they went to trial. Yeah. Now, yeah, eh? Now, Soshnik really fucking pissed off the judge during the hearing because he was frequently late for court, came completely unprepared, or didn't even show up at all. Soshnik, the lawyer? Yep. <laughs> what yep. the fuck? So Judge Ira Wexner, who I did a little bit of... Uh, the name sounded familiar to me for some reason. And I did a little bit of uh, research on him. And he was a very highly esteemed lawyer. Um, he had had enough of Soshnik's antics. And he declared there was enough evidence to proceed to trial. The date was set for April 11th, 1994. The trial actually began on April 20th, 1994, after the jury of five women and seven men were selected. Prosecutor Fred Klein said in his opening statement, quote, He got caught red-handed, and now he's using and abusing the concept of mental illness, unquote. He also described Rifkin as a sexual sadist. Defense attorney John Lawrence countered that Rifkin was a, quote, paranoid schizophrenic who lived in the twilight zone, unquote. Rifkin quite literally snored while the prosecution presented their case. His lawyer said that this was caused by an allergic reaction to a sandwich. Okay. <laughs> An esteemed Long Island psychiatrist named Barbara Kerwin was appointed to assess Rifkin by the defense. Okay. She said that according to the psychological test he'd participated in, he was the most pathological subject she'd ever encountered in her 20 years of experience. So that meant that pretty much he was crazy. Yeah, okay? yeah. Now, I like this part. You'll, you'll recognize his name too. The prosecution pulled out the fucking big guns here. Their expert witness was Dr. Park Dietz who had assessed and testified in the trials of Jeffrey Dahmer, John Hinckley, Arthur Shawcross, and Andrea Yates. He also consulted on the Waco case and the Unabomber. And he's just... So he's one of the most important people oh, ever in yeah, crime. He's a fucking amazing uh, psychiatrist, psychologist. He even had that uh, Most Evil show. Yeah. You ever seen that? That was Park Deeds. Um, oh, no, that wasn't Park Deeds. Sorry. Another really cool guy, though. Um, he, um, in this case, Dr. Dietz testified that Joel Rifkin was indeed a sick man, but he wasn't insane. Furthermore, Dietz said Rifkin knew exactly what he was doing during each murder. Because he went to a secluded place, yeah. he did what he could to get rid of the body, to hide the evidence, all that shit. You know, if you're crazy, you don't think about that shit. On May 9th, 1994, the jury was excused for deliberation. All 12 jurors voted the same during their first ballot. Wow. Now, I don't know exactly how long they were out for, but I'm thinking like half an hour. Yeah, guilty. Yeah. They rejected the insanity plea and found Rifkin guilty on all counts for that one. So that's for Bresciani, okay? Yeah. Rifkin was then subsequently tried in other counties for other murders, and he was ultimately found guilty for... Uh, only nine of the murders, because some of them he couldn't be tied to, right? Yeah. So, 
In a statement read in court by Joel Rifkin, he said, and I'm going to read this right from the book, I want you to know that I am sorry for what I have done to you and your daughters. I will go to my grave carrying the deaths of these innocent women with me. Some of you believe that I felt that their murder was in some way justified because they were prostitute, but this is untrue. I never felt that way. Some of them were my friends and were kind to me. My victims were people with dreams and families, and some of them had children of their own. What I have done can never be forgiven, but I ask you to believe me when I tell you I will never understand the part of me that caused me to do those terrible things to your children. Not only will I go to my death reliving these horrors, but I will go there no, not, not, never knowing at all why I did commit them at all. Please believe me that there are other Joel Rifkins walking your streets right now. Like me, they will eventually be caught, but not until they have caused more suffering and deaths. I hope society can prevent this. Um, he was sentenced to 203 years in prison altogether. Should have taken that 46-year fucking deal. Yeah. So during one of his many interviews from prison... Rifkin was asked if he understood why he killed so many women. He said, quote, It was just something that happened, and you know, I had no plans to repeat it. Am I just evil? Am I brain damaged? I mean, these are questions I want answered. So, yeah. And uh, there have been studies done on serial killers' brains and stuff like that, but I don't know. I would like to go into a podcast about that to get to see if there is any sort of concrete evidence, like... Yeah. You know? Like, especially in the frontal lobe. Is there anything going on in there with serial killers, or...? I don't know, bruh. Will we ever know if it's a nature versus nurture thing? Will that ever be... Th that'll never be proven. It can lean one way more if you look at certain ones. Yeah. And lean the other way more if you look at other ones. There's it's... never a solid answer. Yeah. Some people are just... Bad. Yeah. Or turn bad. Like... Yeah. Like, the head injuries, treated badly. Yeah. Assault. Shit like that. You just never know. But anyway, that was the story of um, Joel Rifkin. I am glad he is now out of my head. Remember, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to fucking give him too much flack, but uh, Jack Rosewood. Look up what you're buying before you buy the book, man. Jack Rosewood, a false advertising hack. Yeah. Who... Who, who apparently just, dislikes prostitutes or women in general. Yeah, who so, just comes to assumptions like, yeah. fuck that guy, don't buy any of his shit. Or just do your research, maybe, and see what's going on. Yeah, with like his shit, shit on him. <laughs> okay, so uh, follow us on Any Crime at All podcast on Facebook. We love you, our beautiful fucking freaks, and we'll see you next time. Peace Bye. Out.